We're going to be looking in this series entitled Unveiling Jesus, and we're going through Revelation chapters 1 through 5. Now, the chapters 2 and 3, which is where we are, beginning chapter 3, so turn to Revelation 3 verse 1, uh, this is where we're in the midst of these seven letters that Jesus dictates to the 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 seven churches, to, to John, to the seven churches. Now, I'm not going to cover all the ground that I've covered in the past and how the letters are crafted. Each letter is very similar in its organization. So, as we look at these letters, the, the letter today to Sardis, and you're, I'm not sure, what would you call someone from Sardis? Sardinian? Sardisite, Sardines, I, I'm not quite sure, but um, we're just going to say the church at Sardis. Let me tell you a, a, a little story. I, I, I love my grandkids, but I, I, I think they're turning out a little bit too much like me when I was their age. When I was their age, I loved to play dress up. Not with the dresses and all this stuff, guys. I love to play dress-up and be Superman, or to be Spider-Man, or Batman, or some other superhero. My favorite, of course, was Iron Man. But I remember distinctly putting a cape around my neck with, the, with a, uh, a bobby pin, a bobby pin, what are those, clothes pins, whatever they are, that snap in plate, yeah, clothes pin, and safety pin, there we go. And I jumped off the roof of my house. Now, we had a two-story house, and I was not on the top of the second story. I was just on top of the garage, and it was flat, just so you know. Um, I'm, I'm sharing this with you because I see a little bit of that in my kids when they come over to our house for us to babysit them on occasion, and sometimes one or more of them will come dressed up as Spider-Man. Now, they haven't jumped off my roof yet, but I... I they, Sometimes it gets carried away. They, they really believe at that moment they are Spider-Man in their efforts to dress up, okay? Um, sometimes I hear them say, hey, you can't take that from me. I'm Spider-Man. Or, hey, you can't push me. I'm Spider-Man. Or, hey, you can't run faster than me and get away. I'm Spider-Man, Right? And so you're supposed to laugh. I mean, I, I loved this kind of stuff growing up. I really did. And, and I see that in my grandkids. And sometimes going a little bit too far, they actually can get in fights. And that's not too cool. But it, it just reminds me. I, I think maybe I rubbed off on them a little bit too much. But, you know, as Christians, we can play dress up and sometimes not even realize it. We can come across as someone we are not more godly or loving than we actually are. I mean, personally, yep, I played dress up until I was 14. But something happened in my life when I turned 14. I didn't even realize it, but I dressed up and played the part of a Christian until Jesus spoke to me through my old, one of my older brothers. I, I actually had three older brothers and then one younger brother that I would regularly beat up to keep in line. But th this is the nature and dynamics in our family. And, and until I was 14, wow, I did a really good job playing the part of a Christian. Grew up in a Christian home. I sang all the hymns. Um, unless, of course, I fell asleep. Listened to most of the sermons. 
and went to Sunday school, got my first Bible because I'd memorized Psalm 23 in second grade, and I did a pretty good job dressing up. And when I was 14, God spoke to my heart and showed me that I was truly an unbeliever, and I'd never really surrendered my heart to Christ. Sometimes people realize they're playing dress up, but sometimes they don't. I'm not convinced that the, the, um, the church at Sardis didn't re- I, I'm not convinced they realized that they were playing dress up. They looked one way, but were another. How can you recognize it? And then, then how can you deal with that? And what should our goal be anyway? We're going to answer some of these questions. Look at with me now, chapter 3, starting with verse 1. To the church, excuse me, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation. And, and that Greek word there literally means name. You have a name of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Verse 3. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but I will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Again, with every letter, we realize that it begins with generally two symbols taken from chapter 1 in John's vision of Jesus. And this vision of Jesus is not how Jesus was perceived when he walked on this earth in his earthly ministry. He had white hair. He had eyes that blazed like fire. His feet were like burnished bronze in the furnace. He wore a white robe of sorts with a gold sash around his chest. Other descriptions of him, that were just, they're just very odd. But what they do is they don't tell us literally what Jesus looked like, but they're symbols. They're things about him that we've been looking at with each letter that say something about Jesus. Now, here's the important thing. We're going to see this today. But every single one of these symbols, and again, generally two per letter, those symbols have a lot to do with what Jesus is trying to say to this particular church he's writing to. When we come to the he who overcomes, again, part of the outline or the general layout of each letter, all of them have to him who overcomes or a variation of that. That also speaks to the main point of what's being said, and we're going to discover that today as well. Here, Jesus is described, or he's describing himself, 
as someone who is holding the seven spirits of God. Now, this Greek word hold can also mean have. And I would prefer that we render it that way because it's not that Jesus is holding the spirits as much as he has the seven spirits. And we remember that it may be better translated sevenfold spirit. It's not that the spirit of God has seven personalities or seven entities, but rather this word seven communicates this idea of completeness. And that is so important here because it's, it's seven um, seven spirits, and then seven stars. Now, these stars represent the angels. Now, I mentioned to you, I, I do believe that these are literal angels. I know angelos, that the word that's used here, it can also be translated messenger. Some see it as a human messenger, but I talked about this in the very first letter written to Ephesus. That that's probably not what he's talking about because it would give the impression that there was a senior pastor that oversaw an entire city that had numerous house churches. Later, the church, the early church, embraced this idea, and they called those men bishops. They were bishop over a sea or a city. And the reason why this is so important to recognize is because this description of an overseer is not in accordance with the word of God. An overseer is an elder. There is no difference. Now, I'm not going to get into that any more than what I've just shared with you, but Jesus holds... The seven angels, if you were, in his hand, and he is, this is communicating the sense of in his hand that he is, he holds them, he has authority over them, and those angels, we learned, more than likely oversee and minister to that particular church of that city. So, but there are seven of them seven churches, seven stars, seven angels. And again, this concept of seven communicates completion. That's what that word seven means. Now, that's going to be significant as we move on here, this idea of being complete or completion or perfection. Okay? So Jesus is in essence saying, I am the complete and perfect one, and I'm calling you to that same completedness. Now, we need to look at this, because that sounds pretty strange, to be honest with you. We need to now see how this unfolds. He says to them, I know your deeds. This is a phrase that it's found in five of the seven letters. I know your deeds. Why is it that he doesn't say, I know your faith? He's, he always says, I know your deeds. And he never says, I know your heart or I know your, or, or, I know your faith. Because you can't see faith unless it expresses itself in what? In deeds, in action. He, it's as if he is a lawyer and he is bringing a case to either commend or to to, to accuse these churches of something, good or bad. He's like a lawyer that's presenting the evidence. A lawyer does not bring his case against the defendant, if he's the, um, if he's the accusing attorney, he, the prosecutor. He doesn't say, well, we all know your heart. We know why you did it. He's got to prove that, and he proves it by the evidence that you can see. So that's why Jesus says, I, I, I want, see, because Jesus isn't proving the case for himself. He wants the church to see something. 
to be self-reflective in these accusations. Something that he commends them for, but then also something he says, but I hold this against you. There's something that he wants to highlight, but it's always with regard to actions. And I'm going to tell you, our actions will always reveal our heart. So what's the first thing that he brings to them to challenge them? And, and I'm going to say this, that the accusations are not real specific. We, we looked at previous letters, and wow, that sexual immorality, eating food offered to idols, which was basically engaging in pagan worship. You know, these types of clear compromises in their actions, none of that is here, though. So it's, it's very general, and I want us to look at some possibilities of what some specifics might be, because that might be very relevant for us today. But the first thing that he tells them, he says, you have a name. You have a reputation of being alive. But you are really dead. Now let me just tell you this. That word dead can only mean one of two things. It either means physically dead, and how can they have a reputation of being alive if they're physically dead, buried in the grave? How can that be? Obviously this isn't a reference to physical death. The only other reference is spiritual death. In Ephesians 2.1, it says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You see, before I came, became a Christian at age 14, I was dead in my sins. Sin had its mastery over me. I was enslaved to it. It controlled me. It had power over me. And, and, and I, I could look the part of a Christian, but I was still underneath, in my heart, a slave to sin. And I was dead. So here's something that's interesting. Here is a church, an entire church, that manages to have a reputation for being alive, but the truth is, they are really dead. Wow! How can that be? Now, I I'm going to speculate a little bit. I, I want you to think in your mind, how can a church, an entire church, now understand in verse 4 it says, but you do have a few who are this way. We're going to look at that. But right now, the overarching view, I know your deeds. As a church, generally speaking, you have this amazing reputation. You've got a name for yourselves. On the outside, but on the inside, you are dead. And how can that be? I want you to think, perhaps, perhaps in their speech, they know how to talk Christianese. They know the right terms. They talk about redemption. They talk about the blood of the Lamb, perhaps. They talk about Jesus dying for our sins. A very common phrase used amongst probably all churches. But I'm going to tell you this right now. Many of them misunderstand what it means that Jesus died for their sins. Jesus did not literally die on a cross and by his blood pay for my sins. Many churches do not believe that. Jesus' death on the cross to them simply means he gave us an example that we should sacrifice our lives for what's really important. And hopefully with that example, it will prompt something in us to do the same thing. So in essence, Jesus' death on the cross had no power when he died, to affect 
our salvation, to affect this deadness in my soul to make me alive. But the Bible is so clear. This concept of justification by faith, this idea that by his blood, he bought us. The blood of Jesus, the life of Jesus dying on the cross did something historically 2,000 years ago that echoes today. But many, many churches don't believe this. They come up with, and it, it, we, it falls in this camp of liberalism, but that, that's been around for quite a while now. And it, it, today, it, many times it dresses up as conservatism. Yep, I'm, a, I'm a, an evangelical. That's the common phrase that's used by these churches. I'm an evangelical. So you tell the good news? Well, what is the good news? And they've got it all backwards and wrong. And, and, and I'm, I'm not saying this arrogantly, church. You can simply look at the word of God. But what they do is they take a select few verses, present their case, and they neglect the entirety of the scriptures that have to do with Jesus' death on the cross paying my penalty. Anyway, we can know how to talk we can know how to use Christianese or Christian lingo. Perhaps that's what they did. And if that's the case, then we'd have to say they managed to fool a lot of people. I mean, here's my question. Who gave them this reputation? I thought about that. When, Jesus, when you say they have a reputation, now maybe it's the reputation that other city churches have given them. But what about this? What if their reputation for being alive is actually from the pagans in the city? That's a disturbing thought for this reason. Because if that's the case, they looked at them as, wow, they're they're alive. They're Christians. But there's no talk about persecution. And, and if their reputation came from the, the pagan worshipers in their city, how did they manage to escape persecution unless they knew, they knew how to play the game well? And their Christianity was not offensive in any way. True born-again Christians, especially in this day, got persecuted. And then there's a number of reasons, because paganism generally is polytheistic and Christianity is no, we are following Jesus only. Pagans, you're worshiping the wrong God. And because of that, you are spiritually dead. And at the end of your life, when you die, you are hell-bound, separated from God for all eternity. Church, that doesn't go over too well with pagans. It doesn't go over too well, even in our culture today. People want to embrace this ecumenicalism. They want to embrace this concept of inclusivity. Oh, everybody's going to heaven. Don't judge anyone. And, and my question is, at what point as Christians are people going to truly see Jesus in us? Or are we just going to play dress up? We're going to look like Christians. We're going to talk Christianese. We're going to go to church at least most Sundays. But wow, inside, something's wrong. Because a life that is sold out for Jesus, invariably, church, invariably, it offends the world. 
It just does. I'm not saying go out and just start offending people. That's not what you hear your pastor saying. But when you live radically for Jesus, the gospel message does not sell well to the pagans. And there's plenty of them in our day. And many of them even wear the label Christian and get offended that Jesus said he's the only way, truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. That is offensive, even for people who wear the label Christian. Wow. You know, perhaps it's because they were legalistic, like the Pharisees. They knew how to follow the letter of the law, but they didn't follow the heart of the law. They dressed up. With the Pharisees, you knew if they were fasting. They would put dust or ashes on their head. They would, sometimes they would even walk around with their robe torn. Wow, you are really spiritual. And you would do that because you're grieved about sin. But I'm going to guarantee you that if they were grieved about sin, it more than likely was not their own. It was all of you sinners out there you tax collectors and prostitutes. Ugh, can't believe it. I am just so offended. Well, that's legalism. It looks on the outside, just trying to follow the letter of the law, but it preempts a heart decision. Maybe it's rituals, creeds, or even the way we worship. Maybe when people would come into their worship services, they would see, wow, these people really worship. They're really excited. Maybe some of them are jumping and dancing. Maybe some of them are clapping. Maybe they're lifting their hands. Maybe they're kneeling or bowing. They're very expressive in their worship. Maybe they say the Apostles' Creed. And I said the Apostles' Creed, not Apollo Creed. The Apostles' Creed was something I grew up saying um, in, in one of our churches. Nothing wrong with the Apostles' Creed. It's, it's truly a declaration of what we believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, etc., etc. Amazing declarations of truth. But can I say, the scary part is when you do something like that over and over and over, if you're not careful, if you're not careful, your heart can go numb. It can become inoculated to those truths. It can be something that you verbalize, but don't internalize. It's something that you are saying, and it appears very religious, but has it truly impacted your heart? Now, I'm talking about people who worship the Lord and on the external are very enthusiastic. Maybe that's how they got a reputation. Again, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of suggesting some things. How do they get a reputation? but they're really dead. I mean, a reputation of being alive. So here's my challenge. When, when we engage God in worship, is it something that we disengage our heart from? We just follow it mentally. We sing the words, or yeah, I know this song, I like the tune, I like the beat, getting into it, and it, Externally, you're enthusiastic, but can I ask you, is it impacting your heart? Now, I can't judge that. But if people walked into Powerline, would they say, wow, they have a reputation of being alive? I mean, can I be honest? I think they would. I think they would. But I think it would be true 
But what if for maybe some of us, it's not? And again, I can't be the judge of that because I can't look into your heart. Jesus can. Maybe, maybe it's observable actions that got them this reputation. Wow, they knew how to live for Jesus one day a week, but the other six, they lived like the devil. And I've seen those types of people, and I know you have too. And can I say, that was me at one time. And maybe that was you at one time. We know how to look the part on the outside, but on the inside, there's death. We're disconnected from the life that is only in Jesus Christ. Or maybe the church had just a lot of programs. I'm not against programs, but sometimes programs can become mechanical. And by the way, uh, I apologize about the, uh, the AC. We had two AC units freeze up. That's why it's getting kind of warm in here. Yep, so thank you, Sam. Turn it back on. But we'll see how that works. Sometimes it tries too hard and it gets behind and then it freezes up. We let it thaw and it's okay. So it has a mind of its own. So Father, please heal our AC units and bring in some cool air in Jesus' name. The next thing he says is wake up. Maybe with some of this cool little air, cool air, wake us up. Because I know what it's like when you're sitting and listening to a sermon and it's nice and warm. I don't want to say nice, but it's just warm. I don't like nice. I don't like warm. Uh, it's warm, and before you know, whew, you need to walk around. You need to get a cup of coffee. Anyway, he says, wake up. In other words, listen, be alert, watch out, get a clue, snap out of it, pay attention. But why? To what end? What's the evidence? that he has against them to conclude that they're dead. Look at this phrase, church. Wow. Listen to this. I have not, verse 2, I have not found your deeds complete. Wow. I've, I've not found your deeds complete. What does he mean by this? Is it possible that he means you're just not doing enough for me? And can I be honest with you? Many Christians walk around with so much guilt because that's how they would understand it. I'm just not doing enough. And they feel like the little proverbial hamster on that treadmill over and over. Run, 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 run. Gets off, gets a little bit to drink, gets a little bit to eat. And the rest of his life, he's just on that treadmill. Man, he's a thin little guy, but I tell you what, he doesn't get enough. Well, I would never want to live the life of a hamster, just so you know. I grew up with a hamster in our home. He got lost many times. Sometimes, well, we had a couple of hamsters. <laughs> they would get lost, and sometimes we couldn't find them. We would, we would ask and interrogate our cats, but you know, that didn't go too well. Uh, I won't go into anything further than that, except that I, I had a first-hand example of a hamster, and I would never want to be one. But many Christians live that way. I just got to do more. I just got to do more. See, that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about, you just don't do enough for me. That's not what he means by your deeds are incomplete. Because you and I both know that it's not deeds that save us. It is faith. So what is he getting at here? Let me use an illustration that might help us. You guys know what um, cubic zirconia is. Cubic zirconia. How many of you know what cubic zirconia is? 
Okay, it, it can look like a diamond. As a matter of fact, I fooled my wife many times. No, I, <laughs> I let her know what it is. She looks at this big rock. Wow, a diamond? Not really. But, but they look like diamonds. Uh, they reflect light halfway decently, but they don't reflect light like a diamond. They just don't. I could say this about the cubic zirconia. It reflects light incompletely. Well, I mean, my goodness, for it to be a diamond, it just needs to shine more light, right? Am I right, church? No, of course I'm not. The reason why it doesn't shine light completely is because it's not a diamond. It's not because it has to find within itself this ability to shine more light. It needs to be a diamond. My friend, it is not about how many good works you do. It's about where those good works come from. In essence, I'm asking you, are you a diamond, not a cubic zirconia? I'm really asking, has Jesus rescued you? And has he changed your life? Jesus used the term born again. See, these people, they were dead because they had not been raised to life by Jesus Christ, by his resurrection. They were still dead in their transgressions and sins and had yet to, be, to, to truly have faith in Jesus and he would change them, make them born again, raise them up with Christ, in Christ, in the heavenly realms by the power of the resurrection of Jesus. They were not alive. And those who believe in Jesus, and you can study, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, you can study it. Those people who truly believe in Jesus, by grace, through faith, you are saved, you become born, you are transformed. You, you, you turn from a cubic zirconia to a diamond, if you will. You see, that there's a change, and you can't make that happen by doing more good works. That's not what he means by your deeds are incomplete. <laughs> <clears throat> it's not about doing more. It's just that, that it reflects light incompletely. So what's really, really wrong here? Let's get at the heart of this. What's really wrong? You see, the purpose of these works, why do you do what you do? That's what's defective here. See, a good tree produces good fruit. Our problem is that in our good works, especially for me, there was something wrong in the reason why I did it. Let me give you a, a few possibilities here of why we can do good things, but for the wrong reason. And there's one reason, bottom line reason, why we as Christians do good works that the world cannot share in. And, and I can't peer into your heart as a man and find out what that is. And so I'm just going to lay some of these possibilities out here. Sometimes we do good things for people I'm going to word it this way, to gain leverage with them. Much like a car salesman. 
He's really nice to you. When you come through the front door, he's going to offer you a bottle of water. Or if he's willing to spend the money, a buck, he might buy you a soda. Or maybe a Powerade, if he's really been raking in the bucks. And he's going to compliment you. And he's going to talk with you like a friend, though he's never met you. And, and I'm not saying that all of this is just a facade, but I'm going to tell you that when salesmen do it, they are probably doing it to put you at ease so that you're going to say fewer no's and more yeses and eventually buy a car, whatever, that they're selling. See, in that case, he's using niceness or good deeds as leverage. And I want to ask you, is this... Is this why we help our neighbor next door? Because we want to impress them? And, and uh, again, you, we need to examine our own hearts. These good works are not to impress other people. It's not to get something in return. When, when we visited Italy, I thought it was... I mean, Italy has, has a different culture than America does. You, you don't see a lot of street vendors in America. You, you, you see a lot of street vendors there in Rome. We visited Rome, and one particular person walked up to my wife and handed her something, just a little figurine. It was kind of cute. And he, she said, he said, I just want to give this to you. And he paused, and he waited. It was a little awkward. And then he asked, now, do you have something to give to me? <laughs> yeah, euros, right? And my wife said, yeah, sir, I'm sorry, no, 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 here, I want, you to, I want you to take, oh, no, 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 my gift to you, my gift to you, but he gave it to her as a ploy to really sell it to her, right? Can, can we just be honest with one another? Sometimes we do this. Sometimes we do things. To, for a person's reaction, for them to give something to us, to impress them, to, to gain leverage. Maybe, maybe we do these good things. Here's a possibility to relieve our own guilt. Have you ever done that? We realize that we have done something wrong. Maybe we yelled at our wife, and we shouldn't have... And, and, and here's something interesting. Sometimes we're in this habit, we don't even go to apologize. Because we've heard this lie in our culture, love never says sorry. What? What? That is so wrong. Love is never having to say sorry. That, that is so... Anyway, so instead of apologizing, what do we do? Oh, hey, hun. You know what, let me watch the kids. Or why don't you just go out tonight and have some girl time with your friends and, and I'll watch the kids. Or how about, you know, how about if I do the dishes? I mean, you've been doing them every day, every night. And I, I have, you know, several hours of free time. I, I think I might do the dishes tonight. A little bit of facetiousness there. But the truth is, we can mask our own guilt by our good deeds. We can make ourselves feel a little bit better about ourselves because we've been feeling a little bit harsh or down on ourselves. And so we do this so that, what, we impress ourselves, I guess? You know what, guys? All of this comes back to one question. Who are you doing it for? 
That's the only question that we need to ask ourselves. Why are we doing what we are doing? Why do you truly express love to your wife? Maybe it's leading up to an evening, a wonderful evening. Maybe it's so that she will compliment you in front of your friends. You know what, guys? The bottom reason why as Christians we serve and love others is for this reason, to honor the name of Jesus. So that when we do good to them, it's not so much that they applaud us, but that they see Christ in us. That's our goal. The world can't do that. For the world, there is a brokenness even in the good things that they do. So I'm going to suggest that Jesus is challenging them. Make your works complete by allowing me to change your heart. By allowing me to reach inside your heart so that what you do, it's now for, as we were singing, it's for the cause of Christ. It's for his kingdom. It's to do things that are, have an eternal mindset to glorify Jesus Christ because it's not about me. Now, why would I say this? Now, follow me. Because right now, Jesus has challenged the, uh, the church at Sardis to become alive. Two, make their deeds complete. Two, be true, genuine followers of Jesus Christ. Look at what we see here in verse 4. He says, you know what? There are a few of you. What a sad commentary. But there are a few of you in Sardis who have not soiled your clothes. He's getting at something there. If we were to look in Jude, verse 24, it says this, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who, excuse me, in, in, I'm, I'm, I'm missing it here, sorry, reading the wrong passage. Jude 23 says this, to others, that is, those who are trapped in sin, to others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. That's a bit of a mouthful. Let me read it again. There, there's something, of course, that comes before that, how to treat one group of people. This is another group. This is a group of people who, they're not caught in doubt. They're standing firm against Jesus, and they're caught up like in a vice in their sin. This is the group that he's speaking to now. To others, that is those trapped in sin, show mercy mixed with fear. Wow, why fear? He goes on to say, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Because Paul quotes a proverb. He says, good company corrupts good character. He says, the world can corrupt us. Be careful. And the follower of Jesus his mindset is, I want to reach these people. I want to have mercy on them, but I want to be very careful. You know what? If this pastor is going to share the gospel with a prostitute, I'm going to show mercy with fear. 
I'm not going to think, hey, I can never fall. That's a foolish mindset. Paul says that's an arrogant mindset. He who thinks he will never fall, take heed lest he stumble. Sorry, King James. I memorized that, of course, when I was a kid. And so we have to be careful. Do we really hate? He, he words it this way. He uses a metaphor. He says the clothing that's been stained by corrupted flesh. And we have to ask ourselves, do we really hate what is evil? Because if we truly hated what is evil and feared God that we would not want to fall into that, then we will, if we do that, then we will keep our clothes from being soiled, as he says. Engaging in the sinful lifestyle of the pagan culture in Sardis. Sardis was about 1,500 feet in elevation, overlooked a valley. Beautiful. It was beautiful. Have you ever seen pictures of it? Beautiful uh, landscape and such. Uh, people were wealthy in that city. There were certain commodities that was available to them that they sold, and it was a wealthy city. It would be so easy for the Christians to just get sucked up in that type of lifestyle that loves money, that engages in the pagan worship, that runs after all the things of the world, but he is saying, hate it. And, and if you don't hate it, and your guard is not up, mercy with fear, you're going to just fall right into that trap. Be wise. You have a few people who have done that. And the reason why we do that, the reason why they did that, these few people in Sardis, is because Jesus lived inside of them. Jesus, God himself, who was so highly offended by sin, stirring within them by the Spirit of God, hating what is evil, clinging to what is good, it says in Romans 12.9. See, that's, that's who we need to be. And he goes on, and, and I want to just ask them, <laughs> what does it mean in view of that, in verses 2 and 3, he says, uh, strengthen, what re strengthen what remains and is about to die. And then in verse 3, he says, remember what you have received and heard. I believe both of those phrases, what remains and what you have received and heard, is the truth. Here's a challenge. That if the truth is something that we have heard and it's not changed us and it sits on the shelf, we will eventually forget about it that it was ever even put there. A friend of mine from years ago, many of you know him, Bruno Silva. Bruno, Bruno really went through a hard time in his life and God just exposed so much fakeness in his life. This is part of his testimony. And he realized that he had played the part of a Christian, but truly was not. And for nine months, he kept coming to Powerline when we were meeting Saturday nights. And I asked him, I said, Bruno, every other week I get together with you. And you let me preach to you. I, I believe I, I was not just haranguing him, but communicating as a friend, as a father to him, because he really didn't have a dad. His dad abandoned him when he was a teenager. And he said, Bruno, why do you let me do that? Why do you keep coming to Powerline? And, and you want to live just like the world, and you are lost. And this is what he told me. He said, Mike, I'm afraid 
that if I stop coming and I won't hear the truth anymore, I will forget it and I will be forever lost. And the conviction of the Spirit of God will cease and I will never make a choice to follow Jesus. For nine months, the Spirit of God was heavy on him. I met with him every other week for like two to three hours, every time, and always extended that challenge. Follow Jesus. I want to call you out of this darkness in your life, the sexual immorality, the the alcohol, the drunkenness. His mom was doing it. Some of you guys were doing it and just calling him to Jesus. That's We want to say, hey, clean up your act. I mean, he can't. His deeds were incomplete. He was, if you will, a cubic zirconia. And he'd, hey, shine more light. Well, he couldn't. God needed to change him. And I remember that day God changed him. Totally changed his life. That night I went with him to his apartment, his house he was renting, and dumped out, we dumped out all of his alcohol. And he made a decision, I'm following Jesus. But he was afraid that he would forget that truth and that the Spirit of God would not be able to convict him anymore. He feared that. Wow. I want to just point one other thing to you in closing. In verse 1, it says you have a reputation or a name. That's what the Greek word means. You have a name of being alive, but you are dead. We see this repeated in this verse 5 where he says to him who overcomes. It's a blessing. It's a reward that's been given. You see, those in Sardis that were dead, they had a name for themselves. They had done an amazing job of self-manufacturing or promoting this name themselves. And people looked on and said, wow, you are amazing Christians. That's what I get from this phrase, that you have this reputation of being alive, of being some amazing Christians, but you're really dead. You have sought so hard to make a name for yourself, to look so polished. I don't care how much you polish the cubic zirconia. It will never reflect light like a diamond. Wow, you guys do an amazing job promoting yourself. But what is the blessing that's to be given to... It says, I'm never going to blot out your name. Same Greek word. I'm not going to blot your name out. You're in heaven, and you'll be with me forever, and I will never blot your name out from this book, the Lamb's Book of Life, as it's called later in Revelation. I will never do that. You are mine. As a matter of fact, you have the name of God on you. Then he says, in fact, I will acknowledge your name. The the one who overcomes, I'm going to acknowledge his name before the Father and the angels. He's going to announce your name before all of heaven. And that will be a Jesus-promoted name, reputation. How he chooses to do this, I I don't know. Maybe it's at the judgment seat of Christ. But the bottom line is that Jesus is the one who lifts up our name. We're, We're not worthy in and of ourselves, though he says to those in Sardis, those few, you are worthy. And may I suggest it's because they stand in Christ and Christ is worthy. 
if we were to look at Genesis 11, you remember the, the Tower of Babel, right? And they're building this tower, and it says that they were building a name for themselves. Whew, look at us. Look at what we have done. Many people look at that as an example of the epitome of humanism. That they are the ones who are exalting themselves higher than the heavens. But then turn the page to the next chapter, Genesis 12, and in the first four verses, what do you discover? God's call to Abraham, and he says this, and I will make your name great. You see, the one who is dead, there's this tendency to promote self. And Jesus says, you know what? If you're going to follow me and not soil your clothes like the rest of the world, then I need you to allow me to promote you. Don't you do it. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm not against advertising. I'm not saying this. Advertising your company, that's not where I'm going with this. But if we are doing things for people to notice us and gain a name for ourselves, Jesus is saying, die to that. And the only way that you're truly going to be able to do that is if something changes in you. He words it this way, your deeds need to be complete. Not by doing more, but by becoming that follower of Jesus whose heart has been changed that wants nothing less than the promotion of the name of Jesus. And he says, in essence, thank you. Thank you, Cole, for honoring my name and promoting my name and shining me through your life to other people because it wasn't about you or how skilled you were or how much of the word you knew. It was about how you can be a blessing to others and point them to Jesus. Now, I want to do this for you, Cole. I am going to announce your name before the Father in all of heaven. I want, I want people to know, Cole. I want to declare your name. Now, I, I, I'm speculating to some degree how he might do that, but let's understand this, that who we are and the praise that we get, that is not on our radar at all. May it never be said of us that we did it for ourselves. I'm, I'm just going to close with this one little story. For those of us who knew Mike Jeffords, since he first came to Powerline 15 or more years ago. Mike was so squirrely. Even after he gave his heart to Christ, he still wrestled with doing things to impress people. And that was part of his testimony. I'm not throwing Mike under the bus in any way. Mike just, man, I, there was always an angle. There was always, I wanted to look good for others. And he said, man, I just want to die to that. Not a part of my life at all. And God began doing something so amazing in his heart. Because he was wrestling with something that the world wrestles with. And he was, if you will, his clothing was getting stained. And he was tired of those stains. And so God began to change Mike's heart. Just constantly, as it says, repenting and obeying. Repenting over and over. And... I can remember coming back from vacation, and I had a conversation in the car with 
whoever was listening, I don't know, maybe it was Jim that uh, helped me cut the lawn back then. It was years ago. And I said, so Jim, um, when we get home, like probably that day, because we're getting home Sunday and we had work the next, we're going to need to cut the lawn, okay? So I just want to prepare you. It's hot. We're going to get home. We're going to get changed. We're going to unload first, unload the car of everything and and such, but then we need to cut the lawn. I just wanted to get him prepared. And as we rounded the curve to pull into our driveway, the lawn was completely cut. <laughs> a sigh of relief and a hallelujah rose from our car. Woo! <laughs> Thank you, Lord. More, I'm sure, from Jim and I than anyone else, but it was there, and I, I eventually discovered that Mike did it. And his goal was to never let me know. Because he just wanted his pastor friend to be blessed and his family to be blessed so that when we came home from vacation, we didn't have to cut the lawn. Okay? And I'm not giving the, you this example so the next time I go on vacation, I'm not saying, okay? But wow. And, and Mike had, when we did Mike's funeral service a year ago, his memorial service. People constantly talked about how Mike served. That's who Mike had become. And this is my charge to you. Be that man. Be that woman. It's not about your reputation. It is about one thing. It is about Jesus' reputation. Amen. Can you stand with me? Father, we truly want to take a step back right now and to let your spirit examine our hearts. Because it may be that we have been playing dress up our entire lives. And though we may have a reputation for being alive, we are truly dead. And I pray, Father, for those who are wrestling with this. Make it known to them. But Father, lead them to repentance and change them, Father. Please, God, by the power of your Spirit. And Father, for, for those of us who would say we, we, we truly are alive, but wow, there is, I, I just look way too much like some of those people from Sardis. And it is too often that it is about me and it is not about you, Jesus. And for those of us, Lord God, I just simply pray this. Would you graciously teach us, open our eyes. May we live a life that is regularly open to repent and, and being teachable, learning and reflecting Jesus more and more every day. Would you do this for us, God? We want to shine Jesus completely. Would you help us to that end, God, please? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.